from the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois. This is Dive Deep. We dive deep into our Catholic faith, along with Amber Servany. I'm Andrew Hansen and Father Chris House and Father Michael Friedel back as our special guest. As always, thank you, Father Friedel. So we're continuing our series here on Dive Deep, Real World Questions, Real Catholic Answers. Uh, you may be having some of these questions yourself or maybe some friends, so uh, please pass this podcast along. So today we're going to talk about uh, a couple of issues uh, and topics that, again, you may have experienced in your life. Uh, so what should that conversation look like uh, for your adult um, for your adult friend who is seeking a divorce or is maybe asking about a divorce? And then what should you say if your child is living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. So talk about cohabitation, the church is teaching on that, and you know, again, what that conversation should look like. So first, uh, the, the, the divorce issue. Uh, Father House, the first thing I want to talk about is the misnomers and the misperceptions from a pastoral perspective, the Catholic Church teaching on, on divorce and what the church says on divorce. Divorce is not sinful. It's the, if you don't get an annulment and then you get remarried, that, that's the big issue. So what are, what are some other things you want to at least set the table no. so people, people know? In reality, divorce doesn't exist within the church's lexicon, in essence. So it's not a reality. I mean, a divorce itself may not be sinful, but what leads to a divorce may be. The behavior, the attitudes, all that around it may be. Sometimes people have to seek a divorce, and they're the innocent party in it. It could, could be you have a situation of abuse, uh, things like that. So um, for the Catholic Church, basically, here's the reality. If two people freely exchange consent within the parameter of what the church says should be, and that's according to natural law, if two people freely exchange consent and there is nothing to impede that consent, the church believes that there is a natural bond of marriage that is created. There is no earthly power that can undo the bond that is created. So only the reality of death can undo that bond. So then people will say, well, but you have annulments, and that's Catholic divorce. Well, no on two levels, because number one, we don't have annulments. We say annulment, and we need to stop saying it, because we use it as a popular term, as a slang. But... Annulment comes from the verb to annul, which means to undo something. We don't undo anything. The church does have a process of a declaration of nullity, which we've talked about on this podcast before, and that's because the church does an investigation going back to that consent and making a judgment as to whether or not that consent was valid or whether or not that consent was impeded. And if the church judges that it was, then it can declare the marriage to be null from the beginning so so yeah it's for some people they say it's semantics it's linguistics but it's what the lord commanded because we hear this in the gospels you know the the scribes and pharisees come to jesus and ask him about divorce and use the example moses allowed for a bill of divorce and jesus says yes he did it because of the hardness of your hearts but from the beginning god has made male and female, and the two become one flesh. So for us, there is, within the church itself, there is no recognized reality of divorce, sacramentally speaking. So if, if a parishioner were to come to you, um, with not, now, that, now that we know all that setting the table, and they say, um, hey, I have a friend, and my friend came to me, and, and they're talking about getting divorced from their spouse. Let's, let's assume it's no... Um, no abuse, nothing on, on that kind of extreme level, which is more of, more of an obvious, like, yeah, you need to part ways with, with him or her. Uh, what would your advice be for that conversation for someone to have with, with their friend on, 
hey, you came to me uh, thinking about a divorce, but hey, maybe you should look at it this way. What, what would you tell that person? Going back once again to so many other conversations we had, we have to ask why. Why? What is the reason why? Um, because it, it, it may take some time, too, because we live in a throwaway culture. Our Holy Father, Pope Francis, likes to use that term. The problem of having this throwaway culture where if it's not convenient or it's no longer useful or I don't care for it anymore, well, I can just toss it aside. And we do that with so many things. We do that with life. We do that with marriages at times, things like that. So for some people, unfortunately, it could be something as casual as that. But many times, it's, there's something else. There's an unhappiness. There is a, a misplaced uh, desire or misplaced priority. So it's about finding out what's going on. And then, of course, can it be reconciled? Your reconciliation isn't always easy. It can be painful. It can take self-denial. It can take some self-dying. It can take work. But reconciliation is what the church would hope for. Because the question is, you know, do you love this person? Did you love this person at one time? If you did, well, can that love be found? Is it simply misplaced? Has it, sim has it gone dormant? Has the fire gone down, but the, the coals need to, be, need to be poked, need to be brought back up again? So there's, once again, there's no cookie-cutter approach. It's about what's going on in the situation. You have to find out, you know, what, what's the reality before you can find what a possible solution might be. But I think what you said there is important in that if you are the fr if your friend comes to you saying, "Hey, I think about a divorce," it's it's poking and prodding and getting those answers, but maybe not immediately making that that snap judgment and saying, "Well, yeah, you know, it sounds like you know you should get a divorce because something could be saved." And poking and prodding and getting those answers could be ultimately what what saves the marriage and ultimately leads to leads to happiness. Father Friedel, I know you have you've. Um, talked with uh, future marriage cu married couples you've, you've done that along those lines of uh, you know what the future holds what, what's your advice for a young couple who comes to you who wants to get married and you're doing marriage prep with them uh, what, do you, what do you say to them <laughs> <laughs> the you know one of the it's, I pass on it's, it's advice that I got actually uh, before my ordination day and it's advice that I think is just as valid for uh, you know young men discerning the priesthood as it is for, for men and women seeking uh, the sacrament of matrimony, but a priest told me once, you know, the day of your ordination, you lay down on the marble, which is not necessarily the case uh, for the for the couple seeking the, the sacrament of, mar of marriage, but you lay down on the marble and you give your life away, right? You die to yourself and you rise a new person uh, given over to Jesus Christ and his church. In the same way, the couple stands, you know, before God and before family and friends, and they give themselves completely to each other. Uh, the priest said, don't spend the rest of your life trying to take back that gift. I think that's the biggest uh, piece of advice that I have for young couples is there will be days when it's hard, <laughs> right? When loving another person more than yourself is, is tough work. But don't spend the rest of your life trying to take back the gift of yourself, that you gave so completely and so unabashedly uh, there on the day of your, of your wedding. And with what Father Friedel said, exactly right. And in that moment, give yourself totally over. If you hold back one little part, mm -hmm. if you say, I want to give, and this is with everyday discipleship too. This is not just something with marriage. No matter how we're living our discipleship, if we're not giving ourselves totally over, say, I'm going to give 90%, but I'm going to hold this 10% back then you're going to grab for more. Then you're going to, that's just going to 
that's just going to exacerbate that challenge, that disordered desire to be taking things back to reclaiming stuff. It's about giving yourself over totally to the other. And if you can do that in the beginning, number one, if you don't think you can, that, that's a red flag in and of itself. But you know, if you love that person, you want to spend the rest of your life with that person, then why would you not want to give the total gift to yourself? Because if you do give that total gift, then it's not that everything's going to be easy, but it will be easier, though, to continue to live out that commitment. And you never have to question the other's intention, right? If you can stand there and, and give yourself completely to the other person, you never have to question, you know, is this person on my team or are they fighting for themselves right now, right? But if you can really entrust, make that, that complete gift of self, then it's, it's sort of the two of you versus the world. <laughs> you know, you guys are team players. There's, you can't, there's no signing off of that team. Um, and that breeds a confidence in and a trust in each other, in your marriage, and what God is doing in your life that is uh, unquenchable, right? Yeah, and Father House, you, you may have touched on this in, your, in your, what you just said, but you're on the, the tribunal, so you, so you see cases that are, that are coming forward. Um, so again, minus the obvious cases of abuse and stuff like that, is there a common denominator, what you see on, on why marriages failed and why, in the end, the church ma- made the declaration of nullity? And and, and what is that issue? And, and maybe that is your advice for, for a friend who, who does come forward. This is what you, I think you should focus on to maybe save your marriage. No, there isn't a common denominator. We might say there are, we can kind of put things into categories, but it doesn't boil down to one reality. Because sometimes you have two people, two parties, who totally in good faith were entering into something, and then maybe one of them or both of them didn't have the capacity to do it. They wanted to do it, they thought they could do it, but for maybe a psychic reason or that, they couldn't. Um, some people, they, they, once again, they don't give the total gift to themselves, they reserve to themselves some aspect that is not compatible with marriage, and that eventually comes out, and it destroys the, the relationship and, and impeded that, that bond from being created in the beginning. And sometimes we have marriages that come, for, that come forward or they're broken, they come to the tribunal, and they get a negative decision because there's no evidence that says that that bond was invalid from the beginning. But sometimes people make bad choices. Sometimes good people make bad choices in a marriage, and that can have disastrous results. And sometimes... They get on a trajectory or they change. Sometimes the spouse cannot forgive the other, or at least they don't think they're ever going to be able to forgive them for that, and that ends it as well. So in tribunal ministry, there's a, it's a whole mixed bag of what comes in there. It's, it's, um, it's a very sad ministry. At the same time, our hope is that it's a healing ministry, allowing people to at least try to move forward. And sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes uh, people get very upset with us because of what we look at, because we're there to help people. We're also there to defend the integrity of the sacrament of marriage itself. And it just can't, you can't take back that consent. If you've given a consent validly and the other person has given a consent validly, you can't take that back. Because God takes that consent, and then he does something with it. Now, our, our, our second question for this podcast kind of goes along with that first. And uh, what should you say if your adult child is living with their boyfriend or girlfriend? 
Uh, so first thing, cohabitation. The church teaches against cohabitation. From a church teaching aspect that we can kind of get into, get and get kind of your advice as a parent, what should you do, what should you say, why does the church frown upon cohabitation? Maybe frown upon isn't even the right word. They say it's sinful. Right, and, and, that's, and that's from different angles. One is because now, there's, whether it's fair or not, a lot of times there's an automatic assumption that if people are living together, that they're living together morally in a way that's contrary to what the church is asking, especially when it comes to, to physical intimacy, that they may be living as husband and wife. So that may not be the case. You may have a, a couple who are cohabitating, who are living together, who are chaste, who are living the way the church wants them to live. At the same time, though, that can be, traditionally we would say that arises to the level of scandal, though, because that may move other people to thinking about, well, they, they're living in a, in a way that's contrary to God's law, even if they're not. So even if they aren't, it could be a source of scandal. But the reality today is, and this says something about our culture, and not in a very positive way, is that people are not scandalized by that anymore. I mean, it's very few people that are scandalized. We t- now we, we make it, it's the norm in many cases that a couple lives together. And it's like, well, no, it's not the norm, and we know it's not healthy. And we know that that can lead to very severe problems down the line should they enter the sacrament of marriage. And I can speak for myself, uh, b- being married, um, it, I'll admit, it, 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 to be honest, when, when I ask people who, who, are, who just got married and, and I say, oh, you know, what's it like being married? And if they say, well, you know, I was living with them before, so it's, you know, it's nothing really any, di- any different. I feel really bad. I feel really sad for them that the super joyful moment of your life of getting married didn't really change anything for you. And so for me, and then, you know, moving in together with my wife, Rachel, after we got married, it was this, it was this whole new beginning. I mean, it was excitement. And it, and it was what's interesting is we even talked about, like, it's just, it almost stayed fresh for a good one or two years of, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're living together, we're, we're husband and wife. Whereas if we did that two years prior as boyfriend and girlfriend, we would have lost all the excitement, all the, the newness of, of being a married couple. So if, that's why, you know, that's part of my advice would be is, you know, for someone who's, who, who has a friend who is cohabitating is if you do get married, frankly, it's just, it's not, a, not very exciting almost getting married. At least all the couples I talk to say that, you know, nothing's changed. Nothing really seems any different. Uh, what else, what else do you guys recommend to, to people who, who may be cohabitating with someone and you're going to have that conversation? People like to sort of frame it in this way of like, well, we, you know, we were practicing for the real thing, right? You know, we're sort of given the, the, the good old trial run. And uh, the thing that I would say is, what are you practicing for, right? What is, what is there in that? Because to, to live with someone before marriage um, is to say, I'm going to, I'm sort of giving this whole gift of myself except the commitment part. Right, the, except the part where I actually commit myself entirely to you and promise to be with you, beside you, um, together for the rest of my life. If that's what you're practicing, then the day after the wedding, that's what you're going to go back to. Is I now am with you together, you know, forever, except like, you know, when it's not really convenient for me. Right, so you're you're practicing the wrong, the very thing <laughs> that's going to be detrimental to your marriage. So that's that's one of the cautions that I would say for those who you know are considering cohab- cohabitation is just that you know it's it's really not 
like the real thing because you haven't given each other that complete gift of self. Even though, you know, you're maybe engaged to each other or whatever it might be, you've made those initial steps of commitment. But until, you know, you've given it all, the church <laughs> wants you to, to sort of uh, protect the sanctity of, of that commitment. And I've, even, I've seen statistics that say divorce rates are higher for people who have cohabitated than, you know, people who didn't cohabitate, which goes to exactly what you're, you know, so many couples, I think, say, yeah, this is a trial run. If, if I know I can, I can live well with this person, then getting married to them means everything's going to be blissful and we're going to have no problems. Right. Um, or it, it, the other thing I also think is funny when they say, oh, yeah, we got a dog. It's our trial run for a child. It's like, yeah, that, that's not the case either. Um, I think the financial part is what I hear a lot. Yeah. We're doing this because we want to pay for a wedding and this is so much, you know, saves us so much money. Um, but then I think that's not realistic because it's like, well, if everything's perfect, if we have all the money and we have all this, then, you know, then life is going to work out great. And that's like they're trying to avoid what could be a hardship or a difficult thing. Um, and we know that's just not life at all. Um, we're yeah. guaranteed tough times. What, what does the church say about a boyfriend and girlfriend that, um, let's say that the boyfriend and girlfriend comes, comes to spend the night and, and, and literally that's it. Like they're out, they watched a movie. Um, and let's say it's not, let, I, mean, I know this is a lot of hypotheticals here, but let's <laughs> say it's not two in the morning. So it's not like it's dangerous for the boyfriend to drive home, but it's 10 PM. And there's like, you know, can I just crash and sleep in the same bed? But that's it. What does the church say about something like that? Because that is kind of falling in that line of that sticky question. Maybe it could lead to something more. We, that- we, we pray all the time in the Our Father, lead me not into temptation. Well, the old joke, well, because I know the way. Well, you're putting yourself right. That's mm. the whole thing. Why do you want to set yourself up for a fall? I mean, when you're in love with somebody, of course, there are desires and impulses to want to express that. But, and while that can be a challenge, why put yourself into a situation that can make that all the more challenging? And that's the whole thing. We tell people, you know, if you feel an inclination to something, remove yourself from the situation. It's, I mean, some people fall into, uh, a lot of, and that's the thing with, with sins against chastity to begin with. It's about removing yourself from the situation. It's about taking that step away. And that, and so that's the whole thing. It's just, don't, put yourself in a position where you could be setting yourself up for a fall. Hmm. Well, some really good advice. Thanks, Father Friedel, Father House. This has been Dive Deep. If you'd like more podcasts, head on over to dial.org slash podcast. We will continue our series of real world questions, real Catholic answers next time here on Dive Deep.